0: Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and
1: health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe
0: Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom.
1: A quick reminder that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only, and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional.
0: So welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This
1: is episode number 43. We're excited this week to be doing something a little different than our usual guest interview.
0: Right. This week, we're playing around with questions and answers. We've been doing more and more presentations recently, and just did one this morning Mm -hmm. um, at a private school here in New York City, and we've gotten some really interesting, thought-provoking questions from parents in attendance to all of our presentations. We love doing presentations for parent groups and schools, but we also love how many more parents we can reach through the podcast It's one of the coolest things about this platform, so we thought we would take some of the questions parents have been asking us in person and talk through our answers here because there are likely parents listening out there who are
1: wondering, if not the same, then at least really similar things. Definitely. And before we get to the questions, because we handpicked a few that came out of today's session, we wanted to share a little about what we're thinking for Season 3. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's make the big announcement. Okay, the big announcement. So when we got started with this podcast, we didn't have a plan for a Season 3. We didn't really have a plan for Season 2. And if you remember, Leslie, our goal was actually just to record and release three podcasts Which is crazy to remember now that we're on episode number 43 because that means we've now gone 40 episodes past that initial goal we set for ourselves. Yay yay for goal achievement. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we try to set (laughs) modest goals and then you can always (laughs) exceed them. So all that's to say, in some ways, we're figuring this out as we go along. And we've been talking together a lot and thinking about season two And now we have some ideas about how to make season three even better.
0: Exactly. So we started out season one with a list of questions from A to Z. That was kind of our initial idea that we felt really every body positive parent was wondering about or should be asking themselves. And we used that to figure out who to invite on the show to help us answer those questions. And you can see all the answers to those questions in our A to Z guide, which is available for purchase on our website. But we've continued in season two to really answer our own questions uh, based on the research and based on things that we felt like we didn't cover in season one. But we're starting to realize that you all listening have so many questions, too, like right from the source, right from the parenting source. And In our presentations and when you write in emails, you're asking these awesome questions or really specific questions that we might not have thought to ask.
1: Right. So we've been thinking that now that we've had so many of our own questions answered on the podcast, it's time to be more intentional about making sure that you listeners get your questions answered too, like your specific questions answered. So what we've decided to do for season three is organize the episodes not around our questions or even researchers' questions, but around yours. We want to bring listeners in by inviting you to curate our season for us. And we'll be doing the work behind the scenes, of course, to find the researchers and experts working in areas that can give really informed answers. But we really want to hear from you.
0: Right. So this is kind of like a way to have A consult with us. um, And we're going to answer it by finding the best expert that we can find and having them answer your question based on their research. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll really try to be figuring out who's the best qualified person, what the research is out there to answer your question. And then we'll deliver it in a podcast episode.
1: Yeah. So we've decided we want this to be An additional benefit to our current patrons, you may have heard us on the podcast pitch our Patreon initiative, which is really a wonderful way that you listeners are helping us keep this going by making a sustaining contribution as little as $5 a month to the podcast just to keep our lights on and our content coming And so we've opened up a forum for patrons to begin submitting detailed questions for season three, which you can find at fullbloomproject.com slash ask a question.
0: And just to be clear, we're really asking two things for all of you listening. First, if you're already a patron, you already know about this and you should have gotten an email and some communication from us on the Patreon page about your questions. So our hope is that you will go to that site, fullbloomproject.com/slash ask a question and let us know what you're wondering.
1: And then if you're not already a patron, but you do want to get your specific questions answered by a researcher or expert guest, and of course us, we hope you'll consider becoming a patron. That's both a way you can help us keep the podcast running and get your questions answered right here on the show. As always, as our thanks, we send all new patrons our complete A to Z guide to body positive parenting. That's our interactive guide with a wealth of research and resources to help you put the fundamentals of body positive parenting into action. And you can learn more about that guide and sponsoring us at fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And for everyone listening, patrons or not, we
0: want to take the time to thank you all for being a part of our community, for tuning in every week, and for parenting, and working alongside us to try to change what it's like out there for our kids. It's not easy, and that's why we do this every week. It means a lot to us that you all listen and participate in the ways that you do.
1: Yeah, this is airing a little late for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Of course, we're parents, so it's always a little bit late, at least in my experience. But we're actually uh, recording it right after Thanksgiving, and I know it's something we're both really grateful for, this community. That's right. We are so
0: grateful for you listeners. Thanks for listening. So without further ado, let's get into the questions. Yes, the
1: questions. So why don't you read the first question that came in? I thought it was a, it was a good question. We haven't even really talked about it on the podcast
0: Yeah, so this question is, um, do restaurant meals count for family meals?
1: Yeah, and this came up when we were talking about the enormous therapeutic benefit of family meals that we've talked about a lot on the podcast and pretty much everybody tells us this is like one thing you can do as a family to really help promote all sorts of good things for well-being and psychology and children. And of course, the answer is yes. Yes.
0: Of course, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Restaurant meals count for family meals. You know, it can be a little bit more complicated, I think, if you want to listen a little bit more to some of this research that Zoe just mentioned, I would really recommend the Jennifer Harris, What Does Healthy Really Mean episode. That is episode number five, What Does Healthy Really Mean with Jennifer Harris of the Ellen Satter Institute Ellen Satter has a little bit more detailed information about restaurant meals, but the answer is yes, and it can be any restaurant, even a fast food restaurant. Yeah, or a
1: food court. The idea of the family meal and what's so protective about the family meal is the gathering aspect of it. And we talked to Jennifer Harris on that podcast, and Ellen Satter writes a lot about this too, that that experience, teaching the behavior of eating competence and even just socializing your kids to eat in this gathering kind of way, it is more important than nutritional excellence and it shouldn't be overlooked. So sometimes minds are blown when we say, yes, it is in some ways healthier and more health-promoting to gather with your family at a food court or like at a Panda Express than to fixate on getting the best quality food grains and kale on the table.
0: Also, the advantage of going to a restaurant is that you might find information about what foods maybe you're not offering enough to kids because they have a little bit more access to a variety there at a restaurant. We all do usually. But a lot of times if you're restricting anything at home, maybe accidentally, or even if you're following Ellen Setter's Division of Responsibility of Eating, but the what that you're choosing is not varied enough, you'll find your child kind of overeating at places outside of the home. And that's a good just information for you to notice, oh, I need to figure out how to weave some of this in Mm -hmm. to the what that I'm feeding my kid. I also want to note that oftentimes... You know, individuals with severe eating disorders land in our office, and they really have no competence around eating at restaurants. It's one of the things that is restricted first and kind of foremost. And again, we really want to give kids the experience of eating out if it's available to you economically, right. you know, and so that this is a something that they know how to do. They're competent yeah. in.
1: I will say, and this is less related to eating competence and more related to just parenting little small children, there are some schools of thought, I'm thinking particularly about rye parenting and Magda Gerber, that really say it's unreasonable to take a child under the age of five to a restaurant. This is not at all our way of saying, therefore, you shouldn't because, like, so many families are different and kids are different. But it's just, you know, bringing in sort of the um, emotional well-being and parenting or emotionally resilient kids, et cetera, creating spaces, especially spaces to eat for your child that they're allowed to behave how they're going to behave is just worth noting. So taking a small child to a fancy restaurant where you have to spend the whole meal saying, no, don't do that, don't touch that, be quiet – because you maybe have a sense of decorum and want to be uh, conscientious of other patrons at the restaurant, which makes a lot of sense, may not be giving your child the kind of the point of what we're talking about here. And so I appreciate, actually, and I do take my children under five to restaurants sometimes, but when they are acting, quote, poorly, I do try to think about Magda Gerber and how she was just like, they just shouldn't be in restaurants. And I think, oh, well, this is why. So you do want to create opportunities for your kids to eat in places that they can be and they can be kids in
0: right and Ellen Satter's work also helps us think about this in terms of child development and that really the family meal is also the time that you're teaching kids how to behave at a table you know so for the first five years of life like they're learning that mm-hmm. skill and they're not going to do it perfectly and it's not their fault mm-hmm. and um or yours or yours right and that's part of the point of a family meal as well is to learn how to enjoy eating together with people
1: the behavior Socialize right the Behavior.
0: I did respond to this question: Do restaurant meals count for family meals? With the other piece of information that I think is really important, which is family meals doesn't necessarily mean it has to be mm. all the adults in your household with all the kids. Um, particularly in our like after-school craze of you know our kids doing all types of different things, we do really want people eating together and particularly the person in charge of feeding and, and choosing of the food, to come together and eat with the children. It doesn't have to be mom or dad if you guys are both working or mom and mom or whoever is the caregiver, but a grandparent, a um, baby-sitter. babysitter. you know. But the hope is that, and where eating competence comes in, is that everyone's modeling for each other how to enjoy eating, make the meal a pleasurable experience, and to be eating how much they want of mm-hmm. what they want that's, that's offered at the meal.
1: Yeah. So the second question that we thought was very, very worth uh, sharing with you all, somebody asked, how do you talk about your genetic risk factors with your child if an eating disorder has been in the family? And this particular parent was sort of disclosing that it was her that maybe had had the history. And I really appreciated this question. I thought it was brave of her to ask. So we talked a little bit about this in episode number 22, How Do I Love My Child's Genetic Body Blueprint, which featured Cynthia Bulick, a wonderful researcher who dedicates most of her research to understanding the genetic component of eating disorders. And there were two analogies that came up in this conversation, one being... To think of a genetic risk factor, like if you have a history of family eating disorders, to think of it like if you had the BRCA gene or if you had a history of alcoholism. And in those two cases, it's pretty across the board popular to like share that information with your child's physician, with your child, so that they can take precautions because their risk for, in these other cases, breast cancer or becoming um, alcohol dependent or developing alcoholism Are higher than the average bear and the same goes for genetic risk factors with regard to eating disorders.
0: Right and we also talked about in answering this question at the presentation today how one it's still very stigmatized to talk about if you've had an eating disorder or if any of your family members have had an eating disorder um, similar to most mental health um, Mm -hmm. conditions. And we want to kind of push everyone to embrace that in order to really do the best that we can at preventing a predisposed eating disorder, we really need to be out about it. You Mm -hmm. know, we need to start... Realizing, one, it's also not our fault if we had the eating disorder, that we had the eating disorder. Um, But it's also not your child's fault that they're predisposed to it. But it's really, really valuable to help them understand what it is. And this is a different conversation for different ages We also referenced episode number 34, How Do I Talk to My Child About Sex and Consent with Justine and Fonte. It's it's similar, you know, that we want to be having like a hundred of these conversations. A hundred little little of these rather
1: than one, you know, the talk. Justine was talking to us and encouraging parents, like you don't have to have the talk about sex and consent, that it should be a hundred mini the talks. And I think that thinking about that, Can take the pressure off of a parent. And one of the things that we really hammered home for the person that asked this question is much like the kid that needs to be really careful around alcohol, because that first drink for someone with a family history of alcoholism is really dangerous versus a kid that doesn't have that predisposition energy imbalance, going into energy imbalance, whether it's intentional or not, meaning that you're taking in less energy than you're expending as a human being, is a tremendous risk for developing an eating disorder. And so if a parent that has a history of their own can be able to talk to their kid about that and really say, this is not me just saying, you know, be careful out there, but me really telling you that we know science is telling us that a juice cleanse, you know, a crash diet, even just skipping meals for you, given our genetic body blueprint that keeps getting passed down generationally, it's really not safe. And just to be able to not make a big deal about it, but also take it very seriously, because this is a very, very important conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the analogy to alcoholism is really helpful because all of our kids, whether we want them to or not, will be pressured by society and their friends doing it to, yeah, just, you know, go on a little bit of a diet. And they're probably not going to be calling it a diet um, right now. In this day and age, they're probably going to be calling it something a little more trendy like Fat yeah. loss detox. <laughs> no, <our laughs> a detox, detox lifestyle change. a lifestyle or something change. Like this. Right. and that's what, and that's something that we want our kids to know if we've had eating disorders running in the family that that's really extra extra risky for them. Mm-hmm. So that's our answer to this question. Um, go ahead and and listen back into those two episodes for a little more depth there. but um I think it's a great question. Yeah. Um, so the third question was really this kind of, question about how do you do intuitive eating with a predisposition or a developing insulin challenge with the likelihood that someone might get diabetes
1: or be pre-diabetic? Yeah and it was interesting it wasn't clear actually in this case if the child had that if there were like worrisome labs but that really was the question the parent saying I get intuitive eating I like intuitive eating Um, But what if there are insulin challenges and you you want your kid to be an intuitive eater, but you also have to, you know, manage this other part of it? And I think we're going to answer this question by also disclaiming that we're not trying to answer this question, right? We answer it in as much as saying this is challenging and it does require support. Navigating this issue, of course, would require support. But We want to be informed consumers of that support as body-positive parents. You have to be really careful about who you go to with a question like this. So we referenced this conversation we had with Marcy Evans in episode number 32, which was all about my child's gut health. Marcy gave us this great life hack that I thought was brilliant, which was if you have any kind of concerns – in her case, we were talking more about digestive complaints. But I definitely think that insulin concerns would fall into this category and you want to try to preserve this, your child's right to it being an intuitive eater while also navigating a medical complication – the life hack was go to a dietitian who has an eating disorder specialty even if the issue is not disordered eating because that dietitian who hopefully would be also a diabetes educator for example and also hopefully embracing health at every size and intuitive eating and by the way these people exist and if you're listening and you're like yes I need one of those email us and we'll connect you this would be the right kind of support to help navigate We have to be very careful because, unfortunately, a lot of pediatric endocrinologists who are incredible and valuable in terms of the role they play on the teams of our children may unintentionally harm by saying something, well, like, go on a diet, lose weight, which is not really answering this person's question.
0: Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, we just always want all parents to be very, very skeptical of any type of restrictive diet. Some conditions, just like having Crohn's disease Mm -hmm. or having celiac, like you do have to do some type of restriction. And in order to make sure that you're managing the psychological restraint as well as the physiological restraint and managing the potential for binging and other practices that the person feels out of control. We have to make sure that we're, we're doing the best we can to manage any feeling of restraint in that person. Where this gets complicated is that, while sometimes you need to be careful about certain foods, you don't need to try to lose weight. It's also not possible right. to lose weight, as we right. have hopefully drilled into all of our <laughs> listeners <laughs> at by this them.
1: point. But <clears throat> our most
0: recent episode that launched this week with Christy Harrison, episode number 42, really drills into this a little bit more, and so does her book. But the science shows us like it's not possible to lose weight. So if there's ever that happening in the conversation around intuitive eating or diabetes, There's a problem there, and we need to find a practitioner that's coming from a weight neutral approach.
1: Definitely. And I think that weight neutral approach does not mean anti health. Anti diet doesn't even mean anti health, which I think we talked a little bit about with Christy Harrison in, in this most recent podcast last week. But those two things felt key to the answer to this question. One, Make sure your providers and family members, everybody who's involved in in the care of this child, as you try to sort of figure this out and navigate these choppy waters, understands that weight and appearance and all of that has no place in this conversation. And then make sure you do have appropriate support. Hopefully you can access it and try to look for some of those indicators that this is a safe dietitian to work with, someone that is specialized in diabetes education, but also intuitive eating, health at every size, and eating disorders.
0: And a bit of a caveat here is that you can Google and find all types of diets that have kind of research to back up reduces X, Y, and Z. Where the research falls short is that there isn't the long-term follow-up and what we've learned from this is, especially being eating disorder clinicians, is that oftentimes a diet may work for mm-hmm. a certain amount of time, and it may reduce all of these markers, all these health markers that someone's concerned about. And then what we see over time is that the diet is not sustainable. Binging, some type of binging behavior comes in, Along and with weights, weight cycling. And weight cycling happens, and that is an even riskier risk factor for causing poor health outcomes is the weight cycling. And so what came with this question was, what about all these diets that are supposed to be helpful and are shown to be helpful? And this is where kind of the deep, when you look deeper into the research, you can see, well, yes, you could come up with something and put someone on it and potentially they can stay on it for a certain amount of time. But in the long term, It's really, really highly unlikely that it's going to be sustainable. And Mm -hmm. that is, that's what we're
1: talking about here. And and I think just in conclusion on this one, to really be savvy and scrutinizing of any weight stigma that pops up anywhere along the way, because that is the complicating factor, that weight stigma and a child in particular who's starting to get comments at the doctor's office or suggestions in the doctor's office that there might be something wrong with their body and that maybe that's why their blood sugar is wonky, this stigma that can start really young can compound into a lifetime of profound stress. And that weight stigma is what correlates ultimately to poor health outcomes, not necessarily the weight itself.
0: Okay. Let's move on to question number four. How long do you let them just eat bread and butter for dinner? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I felt for this mom because I know, I know the feeling. Like, you know, Leslie and I've been as we started the Full Bloom project experimenting more and more with this real division of responsibility and leaning into letting our kids choose what they're going to eat, how much they're going to eat, and What's stay in our lane.
0: The weather, right? The Just weather. as a reminder. That's the division, right. The division of responsibility. No, no, no. You're right. We're in
1: our lane. We pick the what. But you could put the chicken, the broccoli, and the potato, and the bread on the table. They might choose. that The bread is all they're going to have for their what, that meal. And the question is relatable. And I think in this case, the parent was saying, They just, that's all they eat. That's all they eat. And expressed a concern that it would never change. And so she, I think, had asked it, like, how long do we let this go on for? I mean, I want to promote intuitive eating, but at what point do I step in and parent? And I did kind of wonder, what do you mean? Like, what would parenting look like? Her question and and vibe indicated that she's concerned that if she really just let her kids – eat intuitively based on what she's serving them that there will be some kind of negative consequence
0: yeah and I think that this is a really relatable concern to many people listening and many people in the room I know it happens with my husband shout out to (laughs) Renny like he feels this too and what we learn about raising competent eaters and parenting is that it is our job to notice what they like and make sure that there's preferred foods on the table and that we mix them with non-preferred foods and that we keep offering them this opportunity to try it without any type of pressure. And we let them sneak up on the food. That's kind of Ellen Satter's term is we really let them sneak up on trying new things. And if there's Kids are just so intuitive around they
1: sense if we have an agenda. Oh, they sense. I know it. And I said it to the, the woman today. If I ask my kid to eat a vegetable or I tell them they need to, they will not do it. Or they'll do it for the wrong reasons, like to get dessert or to, what, please me. Like, whereas – the moments where I see them intuitively reach for the vegetable, I'm totally delighted. I will not lie. I get like probably too excited. But I think what excites me is, yes, they're getting a little bit of vitamin D or whatever's in kale, you know. but they're exploring on their own. And they're making this choice. And it's proof that it will not be bread and cheese forever. It just won't be. And you get these little moments. And And sometimes, and I I get this all the time when I talk to parents who have very similar questions, and then when you really get them to drill down and say, is it always? Is it actually every single meal? Is that the case? Oh, well, no, I mean, sometimes they'll eat a little bit of this. Or, well, no, I mean, I guess they like fruit. Or they'll say, oh, they're going to never stop eating sugar. It's it's, really? What are you talking about exactly? So when you actually ask people to get a little bit more specific – It illuminates some of the generalizations we make. And I think we can relate to what it feels like because it certainly looks like that's all they're eating, you know, and where's the nutrition, you know. So we sort of had two things to offer this person. One was a question, which was, what are you actually concerned about? You know, it's not an easy question to answer and we didn't put her on the spot or anything, but what is it that you're actually concerned about? Are you concerned about malabsorption or malnutrition or vitamin deficiencies, like, is your doctor concerned? Like, what are you concerned about? Because that is not always clear to people what the concern is. Right. I want to say two more things. One is
0: there is an eating disorder category that's called avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. And sometimes people are extremely picky eaters. And the acronym is is ARFID. Yes. Yes. And there is a major cause for concern here, you know, Mm -hmm. and if that's truly the concern there, then getting an assessment is our recommendation, you know, so I don't want us to come across as poo-pooing something that's very serious and that we treat within our offices as well. The second thing is, and I think this is what Alan Satter would hopefully support me in saying, is that we also as a parent want to look at, are you starting to cater to the kids preferences Mm -hmm. because a lot of times what happens is we start to narrow what we're serving to try to get our children to eat. So maybe you notice they like pork and they don't like chicken. And so you're making like pork, everything or it's only pork and there's not fish and meat and hamburgers and chicken. And like, and we want to make sure that we're not doing that, that we're not starting to self select Um, for the kid based on their preferences.
1: Which is hard to do because you want your kid to eat. You don't want to set them up for, quote, failure. But sometimes your kid has to be exposed several times, upwards of several times, 20, 30 times exposed to a new food before they're even willing to try it. And try it might be a nibble. It might be a bite. It might not be, you know, the bulk of that particular meal so yeah, I think that those two main points, one, we would never assume that like this woman's question suggests that she's just overreacting to something very normal. It's quite possible that this is very normal behavior in terms of eating behavior for a seven-year-old kid. And it is possible that there are some ARFID-like behaviors that should be looked at and you should never be afraid to go get an assessment from either a therapist like we, we are or a dietitian, But It's really important to be asking, what am I worried about here? Like, get clear with yourself about what I'm worried about. So, that's it for today. Yeah, that's just a sampling
0: of some of the questions that. Hopefully, you resonated with. And um, if you want
1: your question answered, please become a patron, submit your question, and we will answer it for season three. Definitely. And if you're enjoying or appreciating the style of this episode, you can certainly go back and check out episodes from our summer series, like episodes 27, 28, and 29. Each of those episodes, we answered a listener question and brought in a guest to help us answer that question, just to give you a style. And we want your feedback. We want to know if this is helpful. And also, as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really
0: appreciate
1: you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. Thank you all for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.